card. Everything seems to be working today. Baruch Hashem. We seem to be working today. Yeah? Are we live? Yeah, I think we're live. Oh no, I have to I have to go live. I have to press go live. Go live. Now we're live. Okay. It could be we were live on YouTube already. YouTube is not live? Really? That's very strange. Open a new tab. I believe we're live. Okay. Let's do it. Today we continue our study of Megillus Esther. Such fascinating stuff. Such fascinating, amazing and incredible things going on here in the Megillah. I want to begin by responding with, to a comment that somebody made on Facebook. I should remind you all, by the way, I, I really think you should watch on YouTube. It is better quality. YouTube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. If you subscribe and you enable notifications, you'll know when I go live. But Facebook Live works too. Okay. So 
somebody expressed themselves with great angst and frustration about Achashverosh. What a, what a miserable guy. Wow. Esther lies on the floor and begs and cries, and, and Achashverosh is gracious to her. He extends his scepter. <laughs> Look, my friends, Achashverosh is a bad man. He's a very bad man. That's part of the miracle. That's part of what's so amazing in this story. I think we need to be clear. Achashverosh is not one of our heroes. Let me repeat that. Achashverosh is not a person we look up to. I know many, many Jewish men and boys named Mordechai. I have never yet met a Jewish man or boy named Achashverosh. <laughs> we have Jews named Alexander. And yes, that does come from Alexander the Great. Nobody is named Achashverosh. I know many, many women, many girls named Esther. It's my mother's name. I never met a Jewish woman named Vashti. And I certainly never met a Jewish man named Haman. Look, Haman is a villain. He is a sickening, murderous, monstrous anti-Semite. But so is Achashverosh. When we read the story of the Megillah, when we hear about who Achashverosh was, the moral depravity, the way he killed other people with impunity, the way he killed his own wife because she refused to prance around in her birthday suit when he made that demand in a drunken state, in the most vulgar of ways, and not that she was a picture of propriety, but she didn't like the way she was being treated. And she was the one of royal pedigree and lineage. So she refused. He had her killed. This is not a nice person. Nobody I know who is somewhat versed in Torah maintains any kind of real respect or esteem for who Achashverosh was. We are in awe of the story. We pay homage to its messages. We're inspired by its missives. And its story, its narrative, is our story. And it's our narrative of how we deal with ugliness, hatred, anti-Semitism, persecution, and threats against our existential survival. I could go on, but I, I think you get the message. Don't make the mistake of looking for menschlichkeit or decency in the persona of Achashverosh. Be inspired by the fact that despite it all, Achashverosh became the mechanism, the envelope in Hashem's hands for good things to unfold for the Jewish people. We are inspired and uplifted by Esther's courage, her devotion, her dedication, and yes, her sacrifice. Her holiness and her piety continue to kindle warm flames of Yiddishkeit in the hearts and minds of Jewish people around the world and in all times. 
and Mordechai's heroism, and Mordechai's Torah leadership, and his extraordinary faith, and his guidance for a nation that floundered, is what continues to spell out the meaning of Jewish leadership and of Torah guidance until this very day and age. So, with that brief little preface, so that nobody has any misunderstandings, let us look into the Megillah and read Ahasuerus' response. Now, in our previous episode, Esther pleaded, Esther's gambit was, could she get Ahasuerus to change, to rescind the decree? On the surface, she does not really succeed. It almost seems incongruous with the story of Purim, which is the story of stunning turnaround and a transformation of all things evil into things holy and good. All things bad for the Jewish people actually become good. But this little piece of the story doesn't seem to follow that trajectory, or does it? Or does it? And this will be a primary focus of our class. Today we are going to talk about the edict. The edict that Ahasuerus enacted, ordained, or perhaps allowed, subsequent to the fall of Haman and the rise of Mordechai, and when Esther finds favor in his eyes. Pasuk Zion. In verse 7, Hamelach Achashverosh responds to Esther Hamalka's pleading. Vayomer Hamelach Achashverosh le Esther Hamalka. King Achashverosh says to Queen Esther, Ule Mordechai HaYehudi and to Mordechai. Now this immediately flags the Pasuk. Why is he talking to Esther and to Mordechai. In the previous verses, Esther approaches Achashverosh. Mordechai is nowhere to be seen. Chapter 8 opens with the notion of Achashverosh giving the home of Haman to Esther and Esther introducing Mordechai to him. Yesterday, as we talked about in great detail, verse 3 onward leaps forward a couple of months. Now we're in the end of Sivan. Vatosef Esther, Esther again speaks before the king. So this is a full 70 days later, actually. And 70 days later, when Esther speaks to the king, we don't hear a mention of Mordechai being present. Esther comes. As we learned in our previous episode of Megillah Esther, Esther falls, falls before his feet, she weeps, she pleads. And what does she ask for? She wants to do away with the evil scheme of Haman the Agagite, with the plot that he had plotted against the Jewish people. And the king extends a, a scepter, and the king says, please feel free 
relax, you don't need to cry, I'm ready to listen. And Esther makes a request. She prefaces by saying, We explained all this yesterday in detail, what exactly Esther says and how she intends to have her request responded to favorably. That was the Queen's Gambit. What she asked for, She said, Let it be written, in order to all provinces, to return the letter, rescind the decree that Haman had written. And she says, I can't, I can't survive otherwise. That's what happens in the beginning of chapter 8. Now in the seventh verse, Ahasuerus is responding. And all of a sudden he's talking to Esther HaMalka, Ulu Mordechai HaYehudi. Where did Mordechai come from? How did he enter into this conversation? And if he was part of the conversation, why don't we hear about it in verse 3, 4, or 5? Or 6? It's a really good question, and it has to be understood. What does Ahasuerus actually answer? Esther said, please rescind the decree. Ahasuerus says, Hine Beit Haman, Natati Esther. He's talking about Esther in third person. It's almost as if he's primarily addressing Mordechai. But Mordechai wasn't even part of this conversation. He says that, behold, Hine, I gave the house of Haman to Esther. Well, that's a gesture of goodwill, right? And not only did I give the house of Haman to Esther, but furthermore, Ve'oto, and Haman himself, Tolu al Ha'es, they hung him on the gibbet, on the gallows. And why did I do this? Because he had sought to violently attack the Jewish people. He proverbially sent a hand against the Jewish people. When you speak euphemistically, say, don't raise your hand at me, or don't raise a hand. It's, it's a euphemism for violence. So Haman had plotted violence. He had violently attacked the Jewish people or prepared for a violent attack on the Jewish people. And Ahasuerus says, you see what I did to him? Because he violently attacked the Jewish people, because he was plotting violence and sought to do violence, that's why I gave his house away and that's why I had him hung. That's really nice, Ahasuerus. Please tell me something we don't know yet. Oh, and by the way, do you think you could answer the question? Esther made a request. She said, my dear, beloved, royal husband, can you please allow me to keep living? Because if my family is exterminated, if my nation is bludgeoned, I'm not going to be able to function anymore. You're not going to have a beautiful queen. You're going to have a deranged or dead queen. So I can't function. I need you to do this for me. And Ahasuerus says, You know, three months ago I, I gave you his home. I gave Esther his home. He's not even talking to Esther, he's talking to Mordechai. And he says, And he, I had hung because he raised a hand seeking violence against the Jewish people. Fascinating to note how the king 
places, places the entirety of the blame on Haman. He takes no responsibility whatsoever. Who, me? I, Achashverosh? I, I was involved in some kind of violence? You must be kidding. I plotted against the Jewish people? Nah, I'm a big tzaddik. I had the wool pulled over my eyes. Which we know, of course, is not true. But this is Achashverosh. Conveniently disregards his own involvement in the plot against the Jewish people and speaks about how evil Haman was. This verse seems to make no sense. As the Or HaChayim wrote in his commentary, Rishon Litzion, What's he saying? Esther knows this. Why is Ahasuerus repeating what happened three months ago? She just made a request and Ahasuerus said, speak. So Esther's gambit was, she's going to make a request. Ahasuerus will have to respond. And he changes the subject. And this is being benevolent. The, the regional Litzian says, you know, maybe Ahasuerus just like to talk about himself a whole day. Look at the good things I did and recount his heroic acts of kindness and generosity. Maybe he did. But the Rishon Litzion says, Zed Dochak, that's very difficult to accept. It's difficult to accept. It doesn't, it doesn't fit with the, the cadence of these verses. Ahasuerus is kind of softening up, and he wants Esther to feel at ease, and she should speak without tears. He seems to be playing along. And then he just changes the subject. But it doesn't change the subject for long. Because as the conversation continues, in verse 8 he says, Va'atem, and you, which could also be translated, and as for you, no problem. Kisvu ala Yehudim ketev You should write letters concerning the Jewish people as you please. And you'll do it b'shem ha-melech, in the name of the king. V'chismu betabas ha-melech. And it'll be sealed, these letters will be sealed with the king's royal signet ring. Because a letter written in the king's name, and sealed with the signet, cannot be withdrawn or should not be withdrawn. Write a royal letter, seal it with the signet ring, because a letter that is written and sealed should not be withdrawn. It's not what Esther asked for. She didn't ask for permission to write new letters. She wasn't looking for a pen pal. Why is Ahasuerus talking about writing different letters? And then he's talking about letters written and sealed shouldn't be withdrawn. What's going on over here? These are good questions. Very good questions. And they have to be understood. So let's take a look, firstly, at the opening question, which is, why is Mordechai present? Why is Mordechai present? The Vilna Gon, in his commentary on the Megillah, puts it this way. He says, Ula Mordechai HaYehudi, and Mordechai HaYehudi. Why is he there? He says, La Esther Levada, to speak to Esther alone, Hayamit Yare. Ahasuerus was 
afraid is a strong word to use, but he was, he was concerned. He was concerned because he was afraid to say, we can't simply nullify the first decree. She'll start crying again. It's almost like he's a, a normal man. He doesn't want to see his wife cry. Okay, honey, whatever you want, just don't cry anymore. And she turns on the waterworks and he melts. Akashvesh says, no more crying. I can't deal with the crying. So what did he do? So it's almost as if he brought Mordechai into the conversation. In fact, the Vilna Gaon maintains that it's, there's a word missing here. That he spoke to Esther and also to Mordechai. But primarily to Mordechai. The Ma'am Lois, citing the Yosef Lekach, frames it a little bit differently. He says, Achashverosh did not believe that Esther would understand what he was about to say. He wouldn't really accept it. But he was going to make an argument. An argument that he felt Mordechai would be able to accept more quickly. After all, Esther had come in a very, very emotional and distraught state. Although we know that Esther was a careful, well-thought-out strategist. And she was brilliant when it came to playing politics and knowing how to manipulate, in a positive way, the situation. Achashverosh doesn't know that side of Esther. He actually thinks Esther is, please forgive me, a dumb blonde. Now, I don't know that she was blonde or red-haired or a brunette or black-haired. That's not the point. But that's a disparaging term that chauvinists use for a woman suggesting that she's dumb or stupid. And they tend to use this kind of disparagement for beautiful women. That all they have is their charisma, but they're not really very bright. And it's a stigma. It's a stigma. <laughs> Many years ago, I was visited by a young police officer, a young woman, and she was a, a very attractive woman. And she said to me, I feel people don't take me seriously. Is it because I'm a woman? Is it because they don't expect an attractive woman to be a police officer? I said, look, I can't tell you why people don't take you seriously. I try to take everybody seriously. But I said, it, it may be. I mean, in society, you don't exactly strike somebody as fearsome. You just, that's, that's not the way you look. So maybe that's the issue. Anyway, she was actually quite frustrated about it. And I said to her, you know, we all got our challenges. <laughs> this is a career you've chosen, and I wished her luck. And I'm sure she, she's done very well. She was a very intelligent, inquisitive and intelligent person. Here's the point, though. We can even have this conversation today. We can talk about it. And there are probably some people out there who are male chauvinists who are saying, ah, that's just, rabbi is too modern and too... Women are dumb. Okay. That, that's, but a lot of people will appreciate what, what, what I'm saying. is saying, like, that's, that, that's a misnomer. But in antiquity, in the days of Ahasuerus, if you read the way he frames women in the beginning of the Megillah, they should be subservient and there to please their husbands. This is Persian society of millennia ago. I don't know that it's changed, but certainly of millennia ago, that was the way things were in Persia. And that's the ethos by which 
the Persian Empire functioned. When Vashti dared disobey her husband, who made the most vulgar and inappropriate request of her, she paid with her life. So Ahasuerosh figures, Esther's just, she's dumb blonde, she doesn't understand politics. She's not going to appreciate what I'm about to say. Mordechai, he is a seasoned politician, he's a parliamentarian, he'll understand what I'm saying. What is Ahasuerosh really saying? Ahasuerosh says, you guys need to learn how to write letters. You need to start some new letter writing because we can't simply cancel the old letter. That's not the way it works. Once something has been legislated as law, we can't simply delegislate it and make a fool of myself, make a fool of my kingdom. So what needs to happen here is we need to cleverly word a new communication and the new communique will in effect blunt the effect or the impact of the first communique, the first law, without actually demolishing it or without formally displacing it. In other words, Ahasuerus is playing a game now. He doesn't want to lose face. He doesn't want to look foolish. He's almost giving a responsibility to Mordechai and Esther. You guys figure this out. Make it work. I'm behind you. Make it work. And so, thinking that Lotavin, the Yosef Lekach says, eh, she's a woman. She won't. She's a woman, he said. She's a beauty queen. She's not going to understand this. I didn't say that's my opinion. That's Ahasuerus speaking. So he says, we need to have Mordechai. So it must have been rather interesting because here was Esther who did not come to Ahasuerus and present herself as calm, scheming, strategic. She presented herself as a broken woman, as a person who's deeply sensitive to the needs of others and especially connected to her family. Her appeal was primarily an emotional appeal. It wasn't made on the grounds of logic. But Ahasuerus is now going to be talking political science. And he figures, since Esther introduced me to Mordechai, and since she, clearly she trusts him, and because there was first about saving Esther and then saving Mordechai, and now it's part three, we're dealing with the bigger issue, the Jewish people themselves. If I have Mordechai here, if she don't understand, he'll explain it to her. This is the way it has to be. So now we know how Mordechai ended up here. It was as if Esther made a request. Ahasuerus said, hmm, call Mordechai, please. And I don't know what they talked about in between, or if Esther went to cooler heels. But then Mordechai came, and the conversation continued. So Ahasuerus speaks to both Mordechai and Esther, but first he speaks to Mordechai. He says, I gave Haman's house to Esther. Ah, now we can take a look and see why he's talking about giving the home or the estate that we already know about. Esther knows about it, Mordechai knows about it, 
Achashverosh knows about it. All of Shushan knows about it. And that's precisely the point. Rashi explains, Hine Beis Hamon. Beis Hamon, he's talking about Hamon. He says, Me'ata, Hakol Royim Shani Chofetz Bochem. Everybody sees that I'm favorably disposed to you. Everybody sees that now. Whatever they'll say in my name, you'll be believed. You have the position of power. The fact that you're contradicting Haman is not going to be construed as suspicious. After all, Haman has been entirely eliminated. It's you who I trust. It's you who got his wealth, his estate, his compound. Yaminu hakol shemeitihu. They'll believe it's a royal edict. Lefikach. This is the reasoning. Therefore, ain't srichem atem lahashivam. You don't need to bring back the old letters. You just need to write new letters. That's all. Elakisvu svarim achirim. Write new letters. And don't ask me what to write, Achashverosh says. I'll leave that to you. You figure it out. You don't need to write new, uh, to do away with the old letter. You simply need, need to reinterpret. Forget about the past. Go forward. What I've done is given you the credibility. So now this verse starts to make a little more sense. Now we understand that the king needs to have Mordechai present in his mind, thinking that Esther will never understand him. But she understands far too well. And it's not really what she wanted, but this is the best that she could get. As you will see, it actually turns out to be much better than something Esther could have asked for. But that's Hashem making things work. It's the real Vinahapahu, but we'll get there in a few minutes. So the king says to Esther and to Mordechai, look, the bona fides has been established. Beit Haman has been given to you. He has been hung. Why? Because he sought violence against the Jews. So now it's clear to everybody that one who seeks violence against the Jews, he could be the prime minister, the viceroy, he'll be hanging tomorrow. And that you are the one who carried this out, and you are the one who received his residuals. You are the one who has the king's love and faith and trust. So I've put you in a position where you can now legislate. You create a new deal. I'm not going to abolish previous legislation. You interpret it on the go forward in a way which is wholesome and positive. In the words of the Ralbag, Gersanides, he says, what Haman had written is now circumspect. People would say, Haman must have taken advantage of the king. He must have forged things. And the proof? <laughs> He's hanging. If he had done what the king wanted, do you think that the king would have had him hung? Do you think that the king would have sequestered his estates and passed them on to Esther? Clearly, Haman did something terrible against the king. He violated the king's trust. People knew he had the ring. The Jewish people knew he had the ring. Haman had the power. 
and Haman has been deposed since he had the power and he's been removed in such a way. So therefore it becomes clear that he was a forgery. After all, Gersonides reasons, Haman could have been executed in an honorable way. You might remember that a few episodes ago, I shared with you the notion that Haman had pleaded with, Ach, with, with Mordechai, don't hang me. If I have to die, do so in a way which befits somebody of my political persuasion and background and power. Mordechai didn't listen to a word he said because he understood that this demonic, diabolical, evil anti-Semite was just trying to die a certain way, if he had to die, so that his plans and plots wouldn't die with him. Achashverosh understood this well too. He said, look, forgive me canine lovers. I had him hung like a dog. I had him hung like a, like a lowlife. It was a vulgar, disgusting kind of death. Hanging it from 50 amod high. So clearly, people will see that he's been entirely discredited. And if so, they won't even look at what he wrote. But when a new communique comes, and it's from the king, and it's got the royal seal, they'll focus on that. And so you have an opportunity now to do what you must. Now, another way of understanding this, says Rabbeinu Avram Galiko, he says, you know, the people in Shushan, they saw Haman hanging. He was decorating the skyline of the city. It's the letters that need to be written for those who are much further away. Not everybody heard the gory details. People may have heard that Haman was deposed, but they don't know exactly what happened. So Achashverosh mentions the home, the home that's been handed over, he mentions the hanging because he was a tzorer hayehudim, one who sought violence against the Jews. But then he says, in verse 8, Kisvu ala yehudim ketev but you, you are going to need to write some letters. It's not enough for people to say, oh, Hamad probably did something terrible, and the letters he wrote are, are all forgeries. You're going to need to send out letters, and you can do as you please. And he says it'll be sealed, it'll be signed, but I cannot rescind the previous order. Now, Rashi says something very interesting. Rashi says, what does it mean you cannot rescind the previous order? Rashi says, Freely translated, it's not nice. If you want it in a more sophisticated way, it's inappropriate, unbecoming. As if to disqualify a royal edict. That means that the system is broken. How, how could such a thing be? So you have to very cleverly reframe it. You have to redirect things. You have to explain the letter. And the final word will, of course, hold sway. The Rishon Litzion, in his explanation, explanation of the questions that he asked about why, is, why he's talking about the house of Haman, he says now a person will be afraid to start up with the Jewish people. They'll be afraid of Am Yisrael. Why? Look at the last guy. Where's his house now? It, it, it was given to the Jews. Where's he now? Oh, he was hung by the Jews. Kishiro ha'amim. When the nations will see that Haman, Hatsoyer Hagado, Haman 
anti-Semite in chief who wrote these things about the Jewish people. Toloi said he was hung. And it's precisely because he sought to bring violence upon the Jewish people. Husimen Esther, I did the job already. I made the message very clear. I broadcast it out for everybody. That's why I gave you his house. And now you want to effectively harness my actions? That's fine. Kisfu, go ahead and write. Write as you please. And you can send new letters. But you can't undo or disqualify what has already been sent out. You can merely augment and find a way to blunt it. You can turn things around. Now, some of the Mepharsha maintain that this was actually Persian law. And as such, because it was Persian law, Persian law couldn't be undone. Now, Rashi does not seem to follow that approach. He really doesn't. He writes, it's not nice. And I think that Rashi doesn't seem to follow that approach because Ahasuerus, on a quite literal read, makes up the law as he goes along. Bis gets away with whoever he wants. He created a new capital, he created new, new mores, new ideas in society, he did whatever he wanted. Was it, was it remotely normal to have a beauty pageant with beautiful women coming from all over until he chooses Miss Universe as the queen? It's ridiculous. It's a, it's a disgrace for the office of the king. Haman didn't care what the, didn't care what the laws are. Very early on, we talked about this in the beginning of our studies of Megillah Tester, the Orachaim kind of frames and casts Ahasuerus as the iconoclast who breaks all the old laws and remakes the, everything in his own image. So the way Rashi frames it, it's not that he can't do it. You know, some of the, the, the commentaries, um, Rabbi Evan Yisrael wants to say that the Persian monarchs fancied themselves as being reflections of a divine consciousness. Incidentally, in Iran, the supreme leader still says that. He says that he is a reflection of a divine consciousness. Anyway, so if it was divine consciousness, then these were absolute divine commands. Gods can't change their mind. So you have to formulate a new communique in such a manner that it bypasses and limits its significance and its consequences. But you can't simply do away with it. You can't simply vaporize what was. You have to deal with the situation as is. As some of the other Mepharshim explain, Ahasuerus said to them, look, this is not a good idea. I can't do it and survive with my monarchy intact. I'm going to look like a fool. I have to look good. So to say that somebody actually forged a decree in the king's name and managed to disseminate it around the whole country before I caught on to it, it casts me as an ineffectual, hapless, and disabled leader. That's the perfect seeds for rebellion. There's always somebody who doesn't like the king. And if that's the way he's governing, this is almost an invitation to some kind of coup. 
So Ahasuerus says, I can't. I don't have the political capital. I can't own up to this. I don't want to own up to this. You need to figure out a way to enable a better outcome without undoing the decree, the legislation that's already been disseminated. The Megillah Sarim develops this further, Avram Galiko, it's, uh, as, and the Megillah Sarim, as it's uh, anthologized by the Mamloyas, he says, Esther said, look, I'm not angry at you. Ahasuerus said, Esther, I'm not upset with you. Please, don't think that I'm still harboring suspicion. Don't think that I'm angry that you barged into my throne room, which was a violation of the law, which Haman legislated. Don't think that I'm upset that you invited only Haman as if there was something going on between you and Haman. I know that's not the case. I gave you his house. I trust you implicitly. But the fact that I didn't rescind those decrees is not because I'm angry at you. I can't violate the law and then claim to be the one who is upholding it. You can't have the king violating laws. It just doesn't look right. But in view of the fact that I gave you his house and I set you up as such, who will have the gall, the insolence to rise up against you? You're positioned to do as you please. And I will gladly go along. And whatever letters you write and whatever you decide to do, count me in. I cannot harm the welfare of the kingdom. But I am prepared to do everything to enable the Jewish people to be saved. Now, Ahasuerus says, he says, Kisvul ala Yehudim ketoiv beinechem b'shem ha-melech. When Haman wrote his edict, it wasn't b'shem ha-melech. It wasn't in the name. It was sealed with the king's signet ring. It had the backing of the king's imperial power, but it wasn't actually in the name of the king. Ahasuerus says the new edict can be in the name of the king. That's fine. And you write for the Jewish people, ketov be'enechem, as you please. Now, the precise verbiage of what exactly was written, we don't know. The Megillah doesn't record it. The Targumim and the Midrashim speak a little bit about it. Let me share with you what the Alshech writes with regard to the new letter that was written. And I'll tell you why this is important. Because it, it gives you a sense of how Ahasuerus kind of threw a very daunting challenge into the hands of Mordechai and Esther and how brilliantly he dealt with it. The Alshech says, in the edict that had been disseminated, it doesn't say clearly who's killing and who's being killed. It mentions Jews. It mentions those who rise up against the Jews. And it says, muster and be ready on this day. But it doesn't exactly say kill the Jews. It was implicit. So what they did in the letter is they simply moved the comma. They said, it's time to rise up and kill Jews. 
instead of it's time to rise and kill Jews. It's time to rise up and kill Jews. In other words, that the Jews would be the one who did the killing of their enemies and not the other way around. He simply wrote the word Yehudim differently. And that's exactly what the king had kind of allowed them to do. He said, figure out a way to manipulate the first letter so as not to invalidate it. And nobody will question your interpretation because they see I have given you my full backing. To be fair to Achashverosh, he's a genius. There's a dispute in the Gemara if he was Melech Pikach or Melech Shaita, if he was a fool or brilliant. And it's, a, it's a funny kind of argument. That's the, the gulf between brilliant and foolish is quite wide. Achashverosh acts like a brute. He behaves foolishly. But he's also brilliant at the same time. How do they say? Crazy as a fox? Achashverosh doesn't want to invalidate the previous edict because it makes him look bad. And he's not sure how, but he knows that Mordechai and Esther will find a way to make him look good, Haman look bad, and save the Jewish people. And they do. So of course, Ahasuerus didn't have to do the work. Mordechai and Esther were faced with the dilemma of reframing this edict that wouldn't challenge its legal status, that wouldn't demolish its standing, but at the same time, it would effectively neutralize it, and as Mordechai wrote it, turned it around. This is the real v'nahapoch. This is the real transformation. Because had the first letter simply been rescinded, the Jewish people were supposed to be killed, and now they weren't. Instead, what happens is that the Jewish people were empowered to kill their enemies. There was no anti-Semitism for decades, maybe a century afterwards. People were terrified of the Jewish people. The neo-Nazis and the extreme lunatic left went into hiding. They were terrified of the Jews after this. All of the open, out-of-the-box anti-Semites were put down. And everybody else kind of began to look at things very differently. There's an incredible medrash. The medrash says about this very idea. Hanes It's an exposition of a verse in the 55th chapter of Yeshayo. And it says, that this will be unto God, Lashem as a name. What does that refer to? So the Medr says, I'll read you from the beginning. The Atim Kisfala Yehudim, you should write about with regard to the welfare of the Jewish people. Katoiv Beinechem, as you please. B'Shem HaMelech. You'll send out letters that allow the Jewish people to defend themselves and kill all the haters and would-be murderers. On the very day that the enemies of the Jewish people had planned genocide for the Jewish people, enemies, haters, and murderers would be eliminated. It was totally changed. 
And here the Medrash says, V'hayel Hashem L'Hashem, it's a name, God made himself a name. What does this mean? This is a miracle that God did. That there has never been a miracle like this. Has he ever seen such a thing? That we, the Jewish people, were able to rise up against our enemies and neutralize it never happened. At best, we were saved from our enemies. That we should be able to exact vengeance against our enemies? Never happened such a thing. As the, as the Mepharshim say, the fear of Amiso, the dread, the terror, was driven into the hearts of all the anti-Semites? You never had such a thing. It's very interesting, the Alter Rebbe, in Torah Ur, in the Maimarim that speak about Purim and the Megillah, on page Sadiqdalat, he speaks about this notion of it's a Zohara concept in which sometimes darkness can be restrained or crushed, or the dark energy and forces can be sublimated and redirected, entirely transformed. And that's called itapcha, transformation of chashecha, of darkness, into light. Not that when you turn the lights on, the darkness is dispelled. That's iskafia. That's you're getting rid of it. You're chasing away the darkness by the power of light. Here, darkness itself illuminates. By the way, what that means, that darkness itself will illuminate, nobody knows. Nobody's ever experienced anything like that. I have a memory, I shared this many times as a child, sitting on my father's lap at the Fabrengen, a Fabrengen, somewhere in the, in the 70s, in the late 70s, I don't know, 76, 77, 78, somewhere around there. And the Rebbe says, when Mashiach will come, darkness itself will illuminate. The Rebbe said, What that means, nobody knows. And the proof is, I myself don't know. Why do I remember this? Because I was so traumatized to hear the Rebbe saying he didn't know something. To me, the Rebbe knew everything. Maybe, I was, maybe it was 1980. I don't, I don't know exactly when. I know I'm a boy. I'm a boy, and I, and I can't tell you much of what the Rebbe said at the Fabrengen. I would sit there and daydream on my father's lap, not appreciating the incredible privilege I had at the time. But I do remember this statement. I remember the Rebbe's voice. The proof. I myself don't know what it means. So we don't know what this means. But proverbially speaking, it represents a concept which will even be experienced in the most literal way with darkness turning into photons when Mashiach comes. Siddhartha Rebbe talks about this. And he says, This was the miracle of Purim. That Ahasuerus' heart actually became good for the Jewish people. He doesn't take the, the cynical approach that Ahasuerus is just trying to blame Haman for everything. He actually had amnesia. He forgot that he hated the Jewish people so much, it seems. There was, there was actually goodness in his heart for a change. So it seems. The same vulgar mouth. The same vulgar mouth that dripped with hatred, that said to Haman, the nation, ha, do as you please. It's yours. Have fun. 
Hu atzmai. He himself says, va'atem kisva lehudim. You now write a letter, a royal edict, for the benefit of the Jews. Katoiv be'inechem. Same exact words. And Alter Rebbe says, since the words katoiv be'inecha, as is good in your eyes, as per you see fit, was said to Haman. And then to Mordechai and Esther, he says, katov be'inechem, as you see fit. Virtually the same exact words, except be'inecha, singular, he's talking to Haman, and here he's talking to Mordechai and Esther, so it's be'inechem, the same words. Shehu inyin ishapcha This is the notion of transformation of light into darkness. And this is the idea of a nigla, kveid Hashem lamata, that Hashem's glory is revealed, in the place of darkness. And this, I believe, is the pshat in the medrash. That's what the medrash means to say. That's the deeper meaning of the medrash. That's the miracle that ever happened because darkness wasn't eliminated. It wasn't crushed. Darkness was transformed. This wasn't a day that the Jewish people were slated for extermination, which they were able to avoid. It was the day in which you didn't want to be an anti-Semite because anti-Semites and would-be haters had their hands handed, heads handed to them. People were terrified of the Jewish people. They would never start up with them. A total turnabout. So, as I mentioned in the outset, it seems like, come on, seriously? Like, like, like Achashverosh, after all that, is not even going to rescind the letter? He's not even? And I don't know that he meant well. But Hashem arranges it that because he wants to save his own behind, so to speak, he wants to make himself look good. He doesn't want to rescind the law. It doesn't look right for him. He's afraid to spend political capital that will be beyond what he could afford. The reality is it turns out extraordinarily, amazingly good. The polar opposite. The opposite of being destroyed is not to survive. The opposite of being destroyed is to develop and flourish. Had Achashverosh rescinded the original decree, we would have survived. In the way he now paved the pathway, in the, in the manner that he allows Mordechai and Esther to do this, it turns out not only that we survive, but we flourish and we triumph. And that is really the story of Purim and the Megillah. It doesn't give Achashverosh credit. It's Hamelech Malche Hamlochen. It's the king of all kings who works through the medium of this particular monarch in order to teach us a lesson about how we can and will navigate the various waves that come our way and how we, Emir Hashem, will ultimately triumph and prevail. So Achashverosh has now positioned Mordechai and Esther, and he begins his statement with the word Hine. The Divri Esther says, You must know that in biblical grammar, the word Hine is Lashain Simcha. It denotes a certain joy. Achashverosh took joy. He was satisfied and happy about what he did. And this was a good thing. It, was, it wasn't just nice that they had the compound. It was a very good thing because it was symbolic of precisely the power base that Esther and Mordechai needed to be able to bring about not only the salvation, but the triumph of Am Yisrael. So write these letters, says Achashverosh. Do as you must 
And by doing as you must, I know that things will go well for you. So what happened? Well, Mordechai got to work. Vayikru soifre ha-melech. Now that Achashverosh has empowered Mordechai and Esther to do as they must, or as we might say, as they will, now that he's given them carte blanche permission to, not to annul, but to override and to rework the circumstances by wording a new decree in any manner that allows Amisol to be so successful. So now at this point, Mordechai is going to get to work. And here's something very interesting happens. Vayikru Seifra HaMelech. Mordechai calls or summons the king's scribes. Ba'etahi. Right then and there. What's the Ba'etahi? Well, the Manas Halevi says, time is short. Many, many of the enemies of the Jewish people did not yet know what was happening. And they were actively plotting to harm and ultimately to murder the Jewish people. The Jewish people were living in tremendous fear at this time. It was not a good thing to be a Jew in the kingdom of Ahasuerus during this period of time. Mordechai felt the pain of the Jewish people. He wants to alleviate the circumstances as soon as possible. It's not okay or good enough if, in fact, things get rotated before the 13th of Adar. And furthermore, the Jewish people have a lot of work to do because they have to now arm themselves. They have to kind of reposition themselves where they are going to be the ones who are doing the killing of bad people instead of being killed by bad people. Not simple. The Jewish people did not have organizations that promoted violence. They were not, per se, paramilitary units. They didn't have really the ability to do this overnight. So there was a lot of reorienting that had to take place. And as such, they needed as much time as possible. Mordechai doesn't waste a minute. He calls Sefer HaMelech Beisahi, Bachedesh Ashlishi, it's the third month. Hu Chodesh Sivan, that's the month when Hashem gave us a Torah. Bishloshev Esrimboi, on the 23rd day of this month. And, Vayikosev Kecholash Atsiva Mordechai El Hayehudim. The scribes wrote exactly according to everything that Mordechai had commanded regarding the Jewish people. El Hayehudim doesn't mean to the Jews, but rather with regard to the Jews, of the Jews. Now Mordechai has these, written, these things written, and it's also written, El Ha'achashdarpanim v'hapachos v'sorei hamedinas. Others maintain that he did actually not write this about the Jews, but that he wrote a letter to the Jewish people too, because remember, from this point onward, the Jewish people have action to take. At any rate, whether he wrote only of the Jews or directly to the Jews, he also sent letters to Achashdarpanim, which are mostly, most of the English Megillahs translated as satraps, Vahapachais, his governors, and Sadeh Medinas is the nobility, the ruling class. Hashem Kush. 
that spanned the enormous empire of Achashverosh from India to Eritrea, or something like that. The Gemara has a discussion about it, either an enormously large area or just a large area. Shiva ve'esrim u'meya medina. Not 50 states, 127 provinces. Medina u'medina kichsava. Every single province in its language. Now, the word ksav means writing. A kotev is a writer or a script. And Rashi says, with regard to these words, el medina o medina, kichsava, Rashi says, kichsava means ba'otiochelo, in its specific, specific language, meaning in its specific alphabet. Kilshono is its actual language. So sometimes you can write language phonetically using other alphabet. Achashverosh could have chosen to write something in the royal Persian language, or at least the characters of the royal Persian language, which would have spelled out the message in each language. But Mordechai was not going to play any kind of game here. He wasn't taking any chances. He made sure that it was written in multiple languages, multiple scripts, alphabets, and languages. There must be no mistake here. And to the Jews, this is definitely written to the Jews, here, Mordechai writes to the Jews, Kichsavam uchil To the Jews, he wrote in their own language. And here, my friends, it is reasonable to say that Mordechai specifically made the point of writing something different to the Jewish people. Ask me why. Because there was a different message to the Jewish people. The nobility was to watch or serve as support. The Jewish people were to take the action. The local military and law enforcement did not seek out the extreme right and left. The Jewish people themselves did. The local military or the local law enforcement aided and backed up the Jewish forces. So you had, arguably, for the first time since the destruction of the first Beis Hamikdash, a Jewish army that mobilized. And their singular goal is to eliminate the enemies of the Jewish people so that innocent lives will be protected and that these criminals will get their just desserts. Not simple at all. Really and truly extraordinary. And all of this under the nose of Achashverosh. And by his command. Not only with his explicit or tacit agreement, but with his encouragement. That's the Yishapcha. That's the transformation that we are speaking about. Now, in order to make sure that this happens in a really speedy way, Mordechai activates the Pony Express. Oh, by the way, the Pony Express, which was the way mail was delivered in the United States with a brilliant system, a fresh horse fed, groomed, 
well hydrated would be waiting at the post and the rider would come in from wherever he was, jump off the exhausted horse onto the fresh horse and ride to the next outpost. The Pony Express was the famous swift mail of the day where mail was sped across the United States. And we'll talk about that in our next episode in greater detail. But the original Pony Express was actually the brainchild of Darius I. It preceded Ahasuerosh. And we'll go into the details, but they, they built a, an extraordinary network and did all kinds of things to increase their speed across the flat terrain of Mesopotamia. They would change horses at these way stations. And we're going to hear about a rochash, which is a famous swift breed of a horse. And we're also going to hear about fast mules or crazy camels. We'll soon see. There's different opinions as to what exactly was used. And we'll talk about this in great detail in our next episode. But the point is, there were some very, very quick runners. This is the DHL of antiquity. And Mordechai makes sure to mobilize that Persian Pony Express and to get the message out as quickly as possible. Now, it's also interesting that he sends a message primarily and really exclusively to the nobility, the political leadership of each province, and to the local Jewish people. But Haman sent his message to the populace as well. The Mepharshim explained that the answer really is very simple. Haman knew he could whip up the masses into a frenzy of anti-Semitism. Mordechai didn't have that, if you will, ability to whip up the masses into philo-Semitism. But what he could do was influence the political leadership. Why? Because the political leadership had taken notice of what happened to Haman. And the political leadership knew now who Esther was. And they had watched the rise of Mordechai. And they knew in his present position that he was the second most powerful man in the empire. So whilst the serfs or simpletons would not have understood what was going on, it was the law enforcement, the magistrates, the nobility, the governors, the satraps who would be able to control and rein them in, who would use their natural bodies of armed forces or police or law enforcement to ensure that things would go as Mordechai intended them to. So Mordechai's letters are very strategic. The Vilna Goyen points out something else, very interesting. He says, why does it have to say that the letters went out specifically in the third month? He says, the furthest messenger had time to return by the end of the third month. So they had gone out on the 13th day of Nisan, and now on the 23rd day of Sivan, they were all back. Mordechai sent them right back to where they came from. Milnagoyen says, They shouldn't get a new royal letter and say, Ah, I don't know if this is real. Why should we listen to the second group, the second letter, not the first one? So he says, Until those who 
those very original messengers came back. They sent the same messengers back. The Vilnagarn also says the reason for this big delay, which we talked about, was that the Jewish people would do tshuva fully. Esther was doing tshuva. The Jewish people were doing tshuva. She instructed them to continue their spiritual cadence, to continue to reach out to Hashem and to wax in their piety and in their devotion. And so it goes on for a sum total of 70 days from the 13th day of Adar to the 23rd day of Sivan. And the Vilna Gohan says that's 70. 70 days corresponding to 70 years. And this is now at the end of the Galut, 70 years from the actual destruction of the first Beit HaMikdash. So all of this was seen as a wake-up call, an opportunity to return to Hashem, the ability that we were given to rotate the situation and bring forth Hashem's miracles by doing exactly what our leadership encouraged us. Tshuva. When we did tshuva, when we returned to Hashem, amazing things unfolded for us all. Vayichtev b'shem ha-melech. He wrote. Who's he? He is Mordechai. The Pdus Yaakov says that Mordechai himself was the one who wrote these letters. The Pdus Yaakov says, take a look at the letters that Haman had sent, the original edict. It says, Nichtov v'nechtam. They were written. They were sealed. Here it says, Vayichtov, Vayachtom. Not they were. He wrote. He sealed. Mordechai, Hishtadel Mordechai, Lies b'maimedak sivavachasima. Mordechai was there himself supervising the writing and the sealing. He himself devoted himself to this task. He didn't, so to speak, give somebody else the responsibility. He didn't delegate this to anybody else. And in doing so, here we see that Mordechai's personal engagement and involvement teaches us, as the Gemara tells us in Mesechet Kiddushin, it's always better to do a mitzvah on your own. So the letters are written and they're sealed. He sent the letters by speedy couriers, runners. Who are these runners? Basusim, who run or travel very, very swiftly on horseback. The riders of the Rechesh. And Who in heaven are these creatures? Well, this is the Pony Express that I talked to you about. And it's translated in a variety of ways. Some of the Mepharshim say that the horses... Those were the, that was the first class 
of, of runners. And then there was the riders of the finest steeds who were owned by the king himself. And then there were mules who were born to mares. Now, why would you need a mule versus a horse? And the answer is that the three different kinds of messengers, the couriers on the horses, and then the riders of the steeds, and then the mules performed the difficult tasks in a different way. There was the short distances, so that was a race. There was the medium distance, which already required somewhat of a marathon. And then there was the long distance that oftentimes would necessarily mean mountainous terrain. The horse is not the right animal, but rather what you need is the mule. This is one way of explaining this. Others maintain that they were not mules at all, but in fact, this is the rachash, are speedy camels, and the b'nei haramachim are a different kind of animal. Let me share with you uh, what the Yosef Lekach says. He says that achashtronim b'nei haramachim were a kind of camel. A camel who could travel on average 16 farsangs a day. Who could eat and go without any kind of nourishment for six days. Camels. And he says this camel is called a ramach. And the other camels are called bnei ramachim. And because Mordechai was so careful, he was so concerned with the welfare of Am Yisrael, and he didn't want people to have to suffer with the fear and anxiety or cower with the uncertainty. He wanted to bring the good news as, as quickly as possible, so he activated the multiple levels of the Persian Pony Express to make sure that the message would get out as quickly as possible. But who was he trying to protect? Not the actual physical welfare of Am Yisrael, but their emotional and their mental state of being so that they shouldn't feel uncomfortable, so that their pain could be alleviated as swiftly as possible. Beautiful thought. And that brings us to the final point that I want to make in today's class. The message, which we don't really get details on this message, but the message was that the king had given the right, the allowance to the Jewish people living in every city, to congregate, gather together, and that they would stand up for their lives. Imagine that. Jewish people would defend themselves. To annihilate, to kill, and to destroy. Es kol chel am umedina. They could go and annihilate and destroy every army or any nation or province who oppresses them. Taf v'nashim, including their women and children. No Geneva Conventions. Female homicide bombers are not okay. Children who walk with bombs strapped to them to kill Jews are not innocent targets. 
sorry. Those who seek to kill, to murder, to maim, deserve to be eliminated, even if they're children. Hitler youth are not exempt because they're 14 years old. And then Mordechai says, Ushalalom lavois. And they can also plunder their possessions. And all of that will take place. The killing, annihilating, the exterminating of all their enemies and all these bad elements in society is biyom echad in one day. And then we go on to give the date. So here's a couple of very important points. Point number one. When Mordechai tells the Jewish people that they have now been given the ability to defend themselves. When Mordechai sends the message out so that the Jewish people know what they must do and that nobility and governing parties know what they must do. What we have here is the king who has given the right for self-defense and allowed the plunder of the wealth of the enemies of the Jewish people. And Mordechai has no choice. He has to write that in the order because that's what the king said to do. The king said, you must work with the previous order and you simply have to reframe it. The previous order, the edict spoke about the plunder. So plunder makes its way in here. However, very interestingly, the word b'yoyim echad is transposed. In Haman's original edict, they would kill, annihilate, and murder the Jewish people, committing genocide against the nation, and then plunder. Mordechai put the word plunder, shalalom levoiz, before b'yoyim echad. Rashi says, Incidentally, Achashtarnim, Rashi says, is Gemalim Amemarim. These are very fast camels. He says, Ratzim is runners, not runners, but Rechve Susim. These are riders of horses. And he said, run, make it fast. Okay. Rashi says, like the Shalom Levais, Kashanichtav Birishainais, just like was written in the first. In other words, why was Mordechai telling the Jewish people to plunder? He had no choice. He was told, you can't undo the previous letter, you have to reframe it. However, we read later in the Megillah that the Jewish people understood that wasn't what Mordechai wanted. They didn't plunder their enemies. They demonstrated to all, they didn't do this because they were trying to make money, they were trying to save their lives. So how do you know this? How do we see this openly? So the Mepharshim very interestingly tell us that it is impossible to kill all your enemies and to plunder and do that all in one day. It's just impossible. So therefore, when Haman wrote to plunder, he said, first kill everybody, and then you plunder. Genocide, one day wipe out the nation. Plunder as you please afterwards. Knock yourself out. Mordechai said, you have one day to get everything done. It's actually impossible. If you're worried about 
defending yourself and eliminating evil murderers, then you have to focus on defending yourself. There was a battle to be fought. There was no time for plunder. And that was perfectly okay. Because if you couldn't plunder on the first day, then plunder wasn't in order. It wasn't in the order, and it wasn't in order for the Jewish people. And Mordechai wanted it to be very clear that we, the Jewish people, had risen up in self-defense and were not trying to take somebody else's money. Let me conclude today's class with a fascinating overview of a talk of the Rebbe, which really, really kind of pulls it all together. Our sages in the Gemara had a dispute as to where we should begin reading the Megillah from. The opinion of Reb Meir is, from the very beginning. Why? Well, the Gemara explains, to show Tokvay, to show the power and the force of Achashverosh. If Achashverosh wouldn't be king, none of this would ever have happened. Rabbi Yehuda says, read from Ish Yehudi. That shows Tokvay, show Mordechai, the power of Mordechai, who refused to bow his head, who refused to compromise on his principles of Yiddishkeit. Rabbi Yossi says, because here, Gidal HaMelech HaChashverosh, Haman, rises to power. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says, who needs the whole beginning of the story? Start from Balayla Ahu. That's Tokfesh Nes. That's the power of the miracle itself. Each of the sages, of course, is right. We do, in fact, raise our voices when we get to Balailahu. That is where everything begins to shift and change. That's where the miracle begins. Without Haman's rise to power, none of the story would have unfolded. And if there hadn't been a Mordechai, would the Jewish people ever have come home? But then again, all of this only happened under the reign of Achashverosh. The final ruling in Jewish law, of course, follows Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir says, it all begins by Yibi Me'achashverosh. It's not enough to relate, to ruminate on and focus on the power of Mordechai or the power or the Tokfei of Haman or even Tokfeishelness. It's necessary for us in order to fulfill this mitzvah to relate the power of Achashverosh. Now, Tokfei Shalnes, the force of the spirit of the miracle, is what, of course, led to Haman being taken out of the equation. And it leads to the rise of Mordechai, from being Mordechai HaYehudi to becoming Mordechai HaYehudi Mishnah Lamelech HaChashverosh, the viceroy or prime minister. So the miracle begins to unfold at a certain point, at a critical moment in the narrative. Haman's fortunes wax and then wane to the point of no return. Mordechai's fortunes seem to be waning, but ultimately wax to a grand crescendo whose power doesn't change throughout. Achashverosh.
He never waxes or wanes. He is the powerful monarch for the beginning of the story until the end. By the way, he does get executed eventually. He is deposed. But that's later on. In this story, the unchanging power, as everything else on the landscape shifts, is Achashverosh. To be sure, Achashverosh is one of the most powerful kings in the history of human civilization. His rule is characterized with arrogance, opulence, unnecessary luxury, lavish expenditures, ridiculous flamboyance. He parades around in the vessels of the, using the clothes of the Kohen Gadol, using vessels, artifacts of the Beit HaMikdash. No monarch before him dared to do that. He lusted the throne of Solomon. Who else throws a banquet for 180 days? Endless partying. And it was all to show everybody his riches and the glory of his kingdom. A total, absolute narcissist. A megalomaniac. a deep and profound anti-Semite. We learned the Gemara together. Achashverosh, his hate for the Jewish people was no less than Haman's itself. When Esther pleads that the decree be rescinded, Achashverosh doesn't actually agree. He isn't ready to admit that he's made a mistake or something's gone wrong in his kingdom. As we learned over the balance of the last hour plus. And so, really, the Rebbe observes, Achashverosh's power is unchanged, and in all likelihood, his feelings toward the Jewish people probably didn't change that much either. And that is the greatest miracle of all. The power of Haman, Tokfeshel Haman, has to be eliminated. And it is eliminated by Tokfeshel Ness, which reveals the Tokef of Mordechai. But the one Tokef, the one might, the one power, the one force which never wanes or never ever experiences any kind of setback or weaknesses, Achashverosh itself. And that's the miracle, despite the fact that Achashverosh, who is quite eminently capable of assisting in the orchestration of the genocide of the Jewish people, is the very same individual, didn't lose his power, and didn't really change. And yet, through his very hands, by virtue of his own mouth, a total transformation occurs. The Rebbe believed that this is so illustrative to each and every one of us about how our faith in Hashem must carry us through thick and thin. We may be in a time in which the political leadership is not favorably disposed to the Jewish people. We may be living in a time in which the might and the power seems to be arraigned against us. My dear friends, what else is new? We've been there. And despite it all, we flourished. We triumphed by us being fully committed to our Yiddishkeit, despite what may be going on around us. Achashverosh can be in power.
we can continue to flourish by virtue of Hashem's miracles. And that's the real v'nahapoch, the real transformation. And so uh, we started today's class, this episode, seemingly with a, like, almost disappointed. That's all. Achashverosh didn't do anything more than that. But in fact, now when you really look into it, the fact that Achashverosh refused to rescind the decree becomes the catalyst for the greatest of transformations, for the unfolding of the most remarkable, miraculous turnabout. Kainti Yelonu, may we merit, my dear friends, my brothers and sisters, may we merit that in Bayomim Hohem, just as miracles unfolded, that this should be Bizman Hazer, that we should merit to see the greatest of transformations, as the Alter Rebbe indicates in Torah Ur, that the story of Esther, the narrative of the Megillah, is really, in a sense, what presages the future transformation that will be brought about through the coming of Mashiach, Bimheira, will be Amenu Amen. Thanks so much for joining today. If you haven't yet, please subscribe. And don't forget to enable notifications. YouTube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Thanks. Have an amazing day.